before I start this conversation about my book, I have to start with a brief introduction uh, about myself and you know, thanking you guys. As you, as the presenter has already introduced me, I've been in this field of teaching history and archaeology for more than a decade. It is 12 years or 13 years now we are going. And I've been doing researches and reading a lot. It came to me, it dawned to me that, you see, all empires that we starred in history, as you said, have had parties and progression. Frankly speaking, these parties and progression are not limited into uh, a particular set of parties due to geographical differentiation, temporal differences, the nature of people involved, and mainly the competitors that existed in each particular time. Each empire gone had some kind of uniqueness. Nevertheless, I noted, or many scholars have been noting that they share some kind of properties that can help to understand them and therefore undergo what in scientific study we call generalization, purpose, understand behaviors of empires and civilizations. Now, it is this that, you know, brought my curiosity towards writing this book, penning down some notes and eventually coming with a big idea that is now more than 300 pages. Mm. The first thing is this book is more of a study. It's a compendium of knowledge of civilizations. It happens that today, the only hegemon are now uh, this empire, when an empire dominates and uh, creates a sphere of influence into other powers, we tend to call it a leader. It becomes a sort of a premier state, and that is what I mean with a hegemon. Now, if you read the, the book is titled, there is hegemon when you have an Y at the end, and there is a hegemon without an Y. Now, one without an Y means a leader, a primaire state that dominates others, while that act or that you, uh, the situation of being in that state is what we call hegemon with the and why. This book is named dot, 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 in the last days of American hegemony, territories and the proofs in the US situation. The title was specifically chosen because the dots means there is some links that we have to connect in order to start that the US is is winning. And we are using hegemony because in the scholarship, the use of empire in the strict meaning of the word is a bit debatable and confusing. Frankly speaking, you cannot use the word empire to refer to America because an empire as a word comes from the Roman, the Latin word imperator. Uh, 
Imperator became um, was more of a command uh, when a commander, mainly in the army, was too dominant and well and outspoken, he was declared an imperator. Now, through what you call uh, Lex, uh, through Lexis evolution, uh, through uh, when Latin, you know, breakdown, French became more influential. And it is from French where the word emperor, uh, which means an emperor, is where we are sorting empire. I mean, an area that is an, under the emperor. It has a long story. If you look at the USA, the USA is a unique power. And this is, should be stressed. We don't have in history a power that had the quality and the characteristics of the United States. All the powers we call empires were under the imperator, or a king, or some kind of military general or conqueror, who in one way or another dominated and his power was felt by the other uh, neighboring powers. And therefore, in history, more often we have what we can call regional powers. Now, these empires dominated particular regions. It is for the first time in the current order where the USA is dominating almost the whole world. And the USA is a democracy. The USA is a republic. It is not under the king, and it is not under a, you know, a military general. Now, this distinguishes the USA from what went on in the past. Now, why did I write this book about USA and use the name USA? While it is a compendium of some kind of studying empires and their party, their characteristics and whatever. Now, publishing this book was a decision I made personally, but for the sake of knowledge. I thought there is something that we have to learn about the USA, and that can be well understood if the past is correctly interpreted. Uh, knowledge is boundless. Someone would ask me, why did you choose to write about the USA? Maybe you're anti-American or whatever. That is not true. Knowledge is boundless. We are not limited to a particular set of you know, states or sticking in the past, while we have the current hegemon that we can discuss. Uh, the current USA, as I noted, is a global hegemon and therefore influences most of the lands. We have a global dominance that justifies as being affected or influenced by the United States of America. If we bypass speaking about the United States of America, we bypass understanding what is happening to us because the USA is enforcing everyone. The USA is dominating many nations. The USA is curbing many nations into spheres of influence. And most empires are gone. 
But we have the United States of America as an empire that we can understand that is alive. We can easily make reference to what we see and what we have been reading. Therefore, if we have to understand empires better, why not? Why not having a, a compendium that, you know, expose the current hegemon that has things we can improve, things we can see. Now, and the uniqueness of the United States of America makes it a rich ground for understanding empires. And the controversies that have been, you know, key towards making uh, empires understood. Now, what I'm presenting is this book. This is a wallpaper for the ebook that you can find on Amazon. But the paperback and hardcover do have plenty covers, and you cannot see this wall. It was used deliberately because, you know, it reinforces what is the content in the book and helps better understanding what we are referring to. It is for everyone to explore. Cover precision is not my, my area. The title, as I have referred to it already, it is about the wedding of America with perspective on what happened in the past, particularly in Empire's Court. I'm calling it a hegemon because it is a leadership. And the USA is not disappearing or disintegrating. When we call winning, it means it is losing its primus and a primary role in the diplomas and politics of the, the world. This book is organized into sections and parts. There are six sections and these sections have headlines. As you see on this PowerPoint, the first section is what we call Expose or Diarema. Now, why this name and what does it mean? An Expose is a film or a piece of writing which reveals the truth about a situation or a person, especially something involving shocking facts. This is according to the Collins Dictionary, some online dictionary. You can assess it easily. Now, in this section, I will ask you briefly what it means. This section tries to reveal what is going on in the USA. This book literally starts in a dramatic fashion, starting with what is going on today in the United States of America, and then moving forward to show how these are, you know, indicators of social dislocation, social, political, and economic dislocation. The very first sentence of this section states, it is written all over the stars that the jack of all trades is master of none. 
this section is trying to reveal that the United States of America today is involved in, or is trying to be involved or to get involved into different aspects of global character that it is pretending to be the jack of all trade. Now, in the attempt to be the jack of all trade, we see that the United States is trying to be the policeman of the world. We also see that to be able to go about this, the United States must enlist the support of allies. Now, these allies, as I represent in the book, are divided into three groups. These allies are on the back and the call of the United States of America. They are the foundation of why she is successful fighting wars and winning diplomacy. But then, as we open this book, we find there is, you know, it is during President Donald, uh, Donald Trump's presidency, and we find some kind of revelation that are discomforting. One, the president comes with the realization that the allies are actually outsmarting the United States in form of, you know, megalomaniac trade imbalances causing deficit. Now, we find that the president is trying to address this, but he's facing very unprecedented challenges because many economists, mainly because they are, they are well aware that the United States of America has an economy that is very much integrated with the global economy and cannot, you know, pull away. They know, uh, they think he is likely going to cause tremendous shaking of the economy and therefore, you know, dethrone the United States primus as the global police. But there is, you know, what I can call a controversy because the position that the United States of America is holding has forced her to become a warring state. She had be fighting wars. She has to be manipulating other lands. And this is causing, you know, the growing of an economy that is based on the military. She has to be fighting wars that currently, you know, superficially, many people think the US is is losing war. But perhaps, according to my analysis, we are seeing a change in terms of policy on war and the use of war for economic gains rather than winning territories. If you see the wars that the United States fired in today, you find there are wars that are leading to failed state. And this failed state, if you map them, they are geographically distributed that, uh, they are geographically distributed that they cause some kind, it is some kind of, you know, there's what we call jubra vein. When you cut someone's jubra vein, uh, his performance cannot be certain. Now, it's like these walls are 
targeted strategically to make the world perform in a way that the USA can still enforce again. Therefore, we are seeing that as we open, we are seeing that we have a hegemon that depends on war to master its economies. And this has led to spreading military tentacles that leave the citizens unprotected. Unprotected in the sense that the business class can now easily outsmart the system of the economy and the, and the uh, economic climate of the United States of America, leading to instability and some kind of you know, uncertainty in the economy, playing in their hands. Almost imperceptibly, the USA is becoming an employer. It has turned herself into an economy that is a lucrative market, competitive, and therefore, what I said about the allies are taking advantage. As we open this book, you find Donald Trump, his frustration was that the deficit being caused by the current state of the US economy uh, is taking a lot of money and a lot of, you know, ability to grow the economy outside rather than, you know, making the inside more viable for the citizen of the, the USA. You know, we realize in the end that the strength that the United States have based on the military is actually becoming the very weakness. And I, as they say, the man's strength is his very weakness. The strength of the United States of America, as you read through, you find that is being, uh, in a way, concentrating, uh, being concentrated in pure hands while leaving people exposed to external influences. The second section is about reflection. As you can see, we are, uh, I am reflecting on the fact that uh, the growth of the United States of America is a very calculated move. I start with the USA initially jokingly her intellectual phonograph very well. The reason why the USA became a primary hegemony now influencing the world was a matter of the calculation. I show how the United States was made a, prim a, a premier state as a result of the first and the second world war. In that section, we learn the law prayed by different periods and political figures. These people deliberately mastered the USA to a, a path that would make it a powerful state by engaging it into war. Now, if you want to know why the USA became a premier state, you have to go back to the zeal that the migrants to the United States had. We had people who left Europe in the 15th century, 16th and 17th century, going to the new world for a better place, you know, for green pasture and dreaming of opportunities. 
what happened really is that when they arrived in the United States of America, or what you can call America generally, these people had one idea they called the Manifest Destiny. The Manifest Destiny was a collection of ambitious goals that involved a lot of assumptions. One of them was the thinking that they were undergoing civilization of other lands, lands that they deemed uncivilized. And the collection of these um, assumptions made them belligerent. History has recorded that these people tried to root and you know, uproot the Native Americans and then try to establish themselves and America for themselves. Now, what happened after that, after the declaration of independence, when the British colonists left America, was the fact that the founding of America became an intellectual creation. In a sense, the founding fathers of the United States of America attempted to elect a state in form of a republic, of course, that didn't exist anywhere else before. It is for this reason that most scholars tend to say the United States as a republic is an experimental state that is a new idea being experimented by, uh, that was chosen to be experimented by the founding fathers. Now, the building of the state passed through different groups. One of them was the influence of founding fathers and different doctrines and social philosophies adapted by those fathers. The creation of the public was a slow process because as you know, the United States is divided into different states. Now, they were not together because each state had its own authority. Therefore, it required unification in order to create the United States as we know it today. One of the most important contribution came from a one James Manro. In, in 1823, he proclaimed what he called the Manro Doctrine. This doctrine aimed to curb the influence of powers in Europe in the Western Hemisphere of America. Therefore, effectively declaring all the lands in the hemisphere to be the area of influence of the United States of America. Now, it is for the first time that we, we see the earliest imperial traits of the United States of America. Now, with the doctrine, America started approaching encroaching uh, on lands that were not uh, primarily under her fold. Lands that were under Mexico and other neighbors were forcefully taken by the United States of America. And when countries in Europe 
uh, attempted to interfere the United States threatened the war. Now, there was the contribution of this Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who extended the, the Monroe Doctrine in 1904, uh, thus making America even more belligerent. Now, later on in 1917, the one Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president of the United States of America, built on all the previous attempts to expand the United States of America to create what he termed, the world should be made safe for democracy. Now, with this proclamation, he entered the First World War. The manipulation that the United States of America made on this, you know, the situation of war created what we call the Wilsonian perspective, a perspective that turned the, the allies in Europe into satraps. You know, satraps is an ancient word you know, from Persia. That means some people who act as allies, but they are actually under you. You are influencing them, and they do according to what you want them to do. Now, Woodrow Wilson successfully held the Americanization of Europe through the First and Second World War, because being in shambles and economic breakdown, Europe could not build herself. Europe could not master you know, many of the important uh, affairs that it used to do. America was the exchequer, the official exchequer of the imperial world, and therefore, Use that opportunity to subject the nations in Europe under the United States of America. Now, what was born is what we call an idealist perspective that contained the real seeds of destruction that we are going to see how you read through this book. This section has a lot you can read, and that is a simple summary of what you will read inside there. Now, the second the third section is territories. This is the most critical component of this book because this book is about showing the parties and the progression. The encounters that the United States of America is undergoing that is usually a cause for a decline of many powers. In the territories, you will learn that, as I have said earlier on, that the United States of America is unique in the sense that it was born as a cunning military state. Now, it built a military complex in order to exploit her ambitions. And this made the United States Army to be a form of investment. The leverage and the gravity of power that the United States of America has was born from effective use of the military and the intelligence. With the investment or turning the army into an investment, you have a problem that um, the army should be a productive tool. And the philosophy of maximum return on investment must be applied on the same. Now, do you know what happens when an army becomes a form of investment? 
we all know for sure that an army is an instrument of cohesion. If we make an army an investment that has to orient and influence the global climate for economic gains, as they tend to call it, American interests, you mean the army must be, you know, what we call the machinery for uh, warring. Now, with the military being an investment, the United States entered into a phase where war is necessary. According to Jimmy Carter, the ex-president of the United States of America, we have only 16 years that the American history has not seen war among the 250 years that the American Republic has existed. Therefore, the military is based on the industrial complex that you know, is backed by the manufacturers of guns and weapons of every kind. And these people are always after profit. They are trying to win money from the industry. This is why the military is always fighting. Reminiscent of Rome, this is where the United States of America, you know, share some traits with Rome. That overdependence on the military means that the state has to be belligerent, always fighting other lands. And with this selling guns, selling weapons, with this influencing diplomacy and you know other states. Now, this requires intellectual capacity. Now, the United States, for this purpose, it was for the United States to achieve this purpose, it had to be an intellectual state based on intelligence. And you find that the whole society is basically, you know, uh, revelaging the use of military intelligence. The, they have to have intelligence units and cohorts that are very sophisticated, uh, gathering knowledge and skills of every kind. At this late, you find that these units have, you know, overtaken the primus of the public. The use of knowledge is, you know, incorporated with the military experts. That is leading to what we call the intellectual class being part of the military influence. The military and the intelligence are using literally every brain in order to master their conduct of business and what they call the national interest. This is the environment where the class known as the lobbying class, the lobbyists was born, another influencers uh, creating loopholes in the society and you know the fairing of the United States as a hegemon. Now, this has made the people of the United States unable to influence the effect because they are mainly outsmarted as well in, in what happened in Rome. They are always influenced by the purpose or the goal of the military complex uh, to generate what, as I have said, maximum return on 
their investment. Money becomes the currency of politics, and the money is you know, a bad master. Money makes um, a state or a public conduct things that are beyond, uh, are not connected to the citizen. Now, even the constitution becomes uh, served in the first place, save the interests of the money class. It becomes difficult for the people to influence their republic because a lot of things come in. They have a state that is complicated with the reality of survival politics, what they tend to call real politics, but I tend to call them much politics, politics that relies on power and arm twisting other people in order to gain you know, their interest. There is a lot of territories, but in this presentation, I am to capitalize on the political side of the, the, the debate. And from there, I move to, you know, a section that we call seeds of destruction, as you can see. I show in this section that what we reflect in the history of the United States, as you know, we saw in reflections, and what we see in, uh, in the current state where political, you know, kind of disagreement and people being disconnected from the you know, from what their state do, as we see in the exposing. And what I show as territories are actually sowing what we call seeds of destruction. The seeds of, the, of destruction, when well interpreted from the territories, you will find that we see the disconnection between the people and the power. The politicians are completely disconnected from what is going on, you know, in, the, in their government. The people are increasingly being divided along party lines and, and some kind of interest such that you do you cannot find them agreeing even on the common issue that is uh, traditional and have had you know some kind of qualification that made them inevitable for the people. There is what we call, if you read historian like Johnny Grab, what we call decadence. The political class is decaying. The, social, the society is decaying. Morality is waning at uh, unprecedented uh, you know, late. Misinformation is becoming a norm. I think there is no place today that is very misinformed or what they call disinformed than the United States of America. Sometimes on the social networks or in different networks, you might find people arguing on things that you, you, you cannot believe in a premier state like the United States of America, people, were, uh, people could be that much confused on basic issues that uh, other people take for granted and they understand them. Now, within this, you see that the patriotism is also waning. People are not proud of their, their, their state. People are not proud of what their military is doing. You know, the American people are increasingly becoming anti-war. They're becoming a population that opposes war. Now, go back to what I have told you that America was built as a military hegemon, one that capitalizes on the exploits of the military and the intelligence in order to score their 
point what they tend to call the american interest now if people become at war it means they are parting ways with their state the republic is not saving their interest now this is creating a kind of incomprehensible political climate that we see today in the united states of america and then the very core classes or groups of people that the united states of america depended on traditional let's say professors doctors you know researchers uh, are being co-opted by the intelligence and the, the military or the ruling class to save them you have people you know facing debate even on basic issues such as vaccination because it is not because they don't know the importance of vaccination but they can see it is tagged to something else that is money oriented and therefore there is a climate of suspicion the people are suspicious of what their state intend to do and they cannot trust it that becomes a problem that is the worst uh, i mean the waning of patriotic feelings among the people is danger to the state and then there is the dislocation of the society you know more recently there are even some states who are trying to, to create a referendum for breaking down on secession because you know they think america is not being treated fairly by the political class now there is also the base of social philosophy uh, the way people used to consider themselves the way people used to believe about the state and their role you know including the fact that uh, people do not see do no longer see that the the primary goal of the state should be fighting wars should be getting involved in unnecessary wars and this is eroding patriotism but it is also risky to the uh, governing the ruling class the leadership and is influencing what we can say a trend that is not you know cordial to the future of the united states as a hegemon as a leader of global affairs because people are losing interest in being a leader people are thinking of some countries that are not leaders in global affairs let's say sweden and denmark and and other countries that are considered happiest americans are earning a lot a lot of return coming to their state but it doesn't seem to improve their livelihood and therefore people are a bit disconnected from the from what the affair from the affairs that their state is prioritizing and that is what i call the falcon cannot hear the falconer if you read in section i think that is part 7 or 8 now these are seeding destruction as you read through you find that the united states of america is appearing you know caused by the commitment of her people is waning now to substantiate what i write inside this book I had to go back to history and this created a deception that called reading the past in reading the past I go back to take selective 
empires, mainly Macedonia, Asia, and Rome, because these were really big states. And they were you know, empires that covered a considerably uh, big geographical you know, territories in terms of their influence. And from there, I'm not using them as a blueprint to understand the United States of America. I'm using them as a way to study how people in those states, you know, diverted from what their state stood for. You will learn in this part that actually what people come to realize in the end is that polit their politics is instrumental in the well-being and success of uh, select, a select class that actually piles negation on, on them and therefore start parting ways with their leadership leading into crumbling or decay of their civilization, especially, no, no, I don't mean civilization, I mean their hegemon. Now, the last section, which is money in his nature, goes back to sourcing why do people come together and covet power thus creating strong qualities that is an empire or a hegemon. And then after a time, their passion for being powerful when leading into decline of states. I go back to reading the human nature. This section is known man in his nature. It is going back to learning what humanity is, what are the aspirations that govern the laws of human nature? Why do people eventually use, lose interest into being predominant and humiliating of others and thus leading to the relevance of the concept of empire being not favorable to them? Uh, I, this book, is connecting the waning of empire to the human nature that a human uh, human being does not keep things the way that the politician would want them to do because in the end the people come uninterested and lose hope in their leadership and ask themselves for example in americans today people are asking why should we, we be attacking other lands for economic reasons? Why should we be controlling other people? Why should, should it be our business to, to be involved in other people's affairs, you know, wreaking havoc and leading into destruction of different lands? Now, this is rooted in the human nature. After a long time of learning, republics, democrats, or empires, uh, either because of intellectual growth or some kind of uh, lengthy experience, people lose interest with you know being premier state, and therefore this human nature led to destruction. I go far to even to uh, you know there is this story of uh, in the for uh, I take it from the Bible where you have. Adam and Eve being given a garden to reside in that was very attractive, that was natural and sustainable. But they had to question God why did He restrict them from eating this and this kind of food? This food. Human mind is very inquisitive and is rebellious in a way. Now, that nature 
usually cause people questioning everything. You can try this even to a child, even when you, pro uh, you provide her with all the necessities. She should be likely to question, to try the difference. So what if I do this different from what I'm being told? Now, that is the nature that human have. People, after a long time, uh, three centuries, two centuries of being in a state that exists in a particular way, they tend to lose interest. Now, that those are things you can learn in all you can learn in almost all empires gone in history. Now, that is the section that 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 is in brief these sections and their parts. That is what they contain. Then, in, oh, uh, for those people who are interested with this book, I present this as the locations or marketplaces where you can find it. This book is primarily published by, uh, published on the Amazon, and you can use my author, you know, my author page to access the book, and you can read selected parts from their online free of charge. I know that the first section is available uh, online, you can read yeah. through the icon, you know, have a look. Now, I think with this introduction of what the book is about and what it contains and its organization, I think I will move to the proper of this presentation. I aimed to make this presentation as, you know, one for the political side of the waning of the United States of America. This is more important to me than the introduction. Now, in order to understand why I argue that the United States of America is waning, we have first of all to acknowledge several facts. Now, these facts include the following. One, The United States of America is a republic, but then republics do not survive longer than 300 years. Rome had a history divided into three periods. There was the earliest period you call the Roman, the Roman kingdom, and then there was the Roman Republic, and then the Roman Empire. Now, if we take the period that is relevant, that is the Republic, Rome never crossed 300 years. And Rome was the longest surviving Republic. There is no Republic in history that existed for time longer than Rome. That is fact number one. Now, fact number two, democracies are even shorter. When you opt into governance that is democracy, democracy is an ancient form of administration. It dates the Greek period, uh, particularly the Athenian city, uh, what we call Athens. The practice of democracy there lasted in very few decades, uh, essentially at most. Now, with these two facts, 
you have also to recognize the following fact. The USA is a fusion between a republic and a democracy. Now, this means to understand the United States of America, you have to acknowledge that the founding fathers of the United States of America set down to make sure they incorporate what they had learned through the times, uh, through the lifetimes of republics. Exploiting the advantages of the elements of democracy in order to make sure that their republic incorporates or uses the benefits of a democracy. Now, this kind of fusion usually creates what we call a republican democracy. The republican democracy has the following characteristics. One, the elements of the republic are always trying to outsmart the people, which means the leadership is always trying to subvert the vestige of democracy. The people believe that the constitution, in this case, constitution is representing the laws generally. Because the constitution is the mother law, and therefore all the laws that emanate from the constitution, you know, can be, you know, referred to as, you know, derivatives of the constitution. Now, within the republic, the elements that favor republicanism form a class that manipulates the public. And this class is known as the oligarchies. The oligarchies use the laws. Remember, I previously defined constitution in order to try to manipulate the public. It becomes the game of chess. The oligarchies studying the population, studying the public, and trying to outsmart them. The public is using their democratic rights enshrined in the constitution, the law, to make sure that they influence their state. And you have two sides that are, in a way, you know, a reminiscence of the the rat and the the, the, the the cat and the mice race. Parties, I mean political parties, are usually covers that are instituted by the oligarchies in order to hide their actual grip on power. With this, as I have already explained, we have two classes trying to outsmart each other. This is the form of state that the United States erected for herself. Now, what happens now, over time, the oligarchies learn how to go about, but go around the laws. I indicated in the first place that you have these dominant classes 
trying to use the laws that are, you know, elevated by the public to try to beat them on the same game, in the same game. Now, the oligarchies learn how to leash the people on hoping that with the laws, with their movements, with their strength, I mean, in the number, they can outsmart or they can influence the public. This kind of competition, over time, make the oligarchies learn that a confused mass is a boom. To mean, it is something that can give them an advantage. If you read different scholars on the winning of empires, there is a stage they call decadence, social decadence, which is form of decay of the sad. The society usually decay when it starts being confused. I will show you how this is done. Now, the oligarchies does treat people with sophistry. To understand this better, I have to go to explaining what sophistry is. Sophistry, a branch of, of uh, populist philosophy or what they call demagoguery is usually the use of clever but false arguments, false calculations, especially with the intention to deceive. In a republic that uses democracy, people use the fact that they are a democracy to try to use their number to outsmart the oligarchies. The oligarchies find ways to go around laws and the constitution by being soft-spoken and clever to the arguments of the public. This is what we call sophistry. In other words, they become capable of telling you this is a cow, when in reality it is a rat. Now, learning the decline of the United States of America, I am saying sophistry is now peaking. The ability of the oligarch class of the United States of America to outsmart the public is incomparable at this time. Now, I will exemplify this sophistry and its application in, in things that are common. And you know, they are very clear because you have heard them in the media and you have read them in the book. Have you ever heard people say, the United States of America is fighting wars to protect the national interest. Now, when the United States fights, she has never fought inside the United States of America. And excluding the First World War, where America you know, alleged being attacked by Japan on the Pearl Harbor, there is no any other war that called Buret by shooting an American citizen in America. 
all wars that we know over the history are, are wars that America went to fight somewhere else. Now, let us assume it is Libya. America influences the NATO allies to go to uproot Muammar Gaddafi. And Hillary Clinton has the bravery to declare America defending national interest by uprooting Muammar Gaddafi. America goes to Iraq to fight and uproot Saddam Hussein. And that is to protect national interest. America conducts you know, regime changes in different countries. And the wars that they fight can be consummated by the public as wars to protect national interest. That should use the most highest level of sophistry, trying to make a bargain with people on things that are naturally not qualifying as what they are. The concept of protecting national interest is the only phase that can invoke any action the United States of America today, even when 90% of the population are not in favor of that action. The other is now, this I'm taking from the old uh, Greek philosopher, Plato. The practice of democracy is the practice of rights. People presume to have a particular set of rights that makes them influential in the affairs of their state. Now, what happens actually is that with the use of democratic rights, the people are usually left doodling with some kind of freedoms and things that they call rights. But in reality, these rights are what, when granted, when granted to the people, make the people capable of letting their state do what they do. For example, America fights war elsewhere to defend democracy. Now, if the United States of America declares it as a war for defending democracy, the population tend to favor that kind of decision. Even when it is purely economic, even when it's purely strategic, it is introduced as a war for democracy. Today, America is supporting war in Ukraine through the president of Ukraine. That is also termed a war for democracy, a war for democratic right, a war to support a democracy, a democratic country. Now, this is only capable, this is only possible because there is a high level of lobbying that takes place before such actions. People are always influenced. And therefore, their democracy allows people getting told what is 
not happen to believe as being happening. A lot of you know PR agencies that are conducting lobbying are using money to influence politicians, are using money to influence the number in decision making. This is a form of sophistry. Now, the other is the interpretation of the articles of the Constitution. Today, it will get you surprised that the United States, the United States of America has a Constitution, but when it is interpreted, you cannot believe, if you have some kind of training in the law, you cannot believe that what you are hearing is really happening. Today, uh, currently, we have a debate on abortion. Now, the politicians in America can today tell the people that having an abortion is a human right, and that is a shrine in the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States. So in the United States of America, whether it is the Constitution proper or its amendments, do not start such a thing. I am not saying it is not something that is unconstitutional. It is for them to decide. But if you, you scrap the Constitution and read it word to word, there is nowhere you can find that justified. But they have a way to interpret the constitution in a way that fits particular political agenda in time. Now this has made people, you know, resent what their state is doing and what is standing for. Therefore, leading to a state that we can see that there is increasing disconnection between the people and what their state stands for. Another example is the concept of gun ownership versus security. The people own a gun, and this is declared in the Constitution, the right to bear, the, uh, the right to bear arms. People are allowed to buy and use guns for self-defense. But in the first place, According to the Second Amendment, it's about checking the possibility of tyranny. The people are accorded the ability to defend themselves against their government when it turns to be you know, dictatorial. The other is security. Frankly speaking, it would be very difficult for someone to convince a sending man, a woman for that matter, that the United States of America, given the army, the military capacity, and the weaponry that it possesses, can really be you know, defeated by the people. That if a dictator or a tyrant rises in the United States of America, the people can take their guns and defeat the dictator. You would need to think a lot of things. You would need to consider a lot of things. And I'm writing in 
this book that actually the constitutional proclamation for the ownership of gun as a right and the way that the people can defend against the tyrant is a, is a white elephant project. It is something that gives more hope and uses, you know, a grand kind of perspective that cannot meet its expectation. And therefore we have people being increasingly insecure. We have mass shooting in schools, mass shooting in synagogues, mass shooting in you know, the streets and taverns and social places, public places. But the people cannot force the Republic to reverse the issue of gun ownership. And the other thing I am saying is if you inquire the nature and the characteristics of the instability in the economy that the United States of America is facing today, according to many people, it's the result of some kind of manipulation. Many policies being conceived are leading into volatility, volatility of the economy, and this is causing unstable economy that the dominant class can actually out exploit. We have America being a speculative economy, and therefore the people cannot cope easily with the demands and the temporal shifts of the economic climate. The other thing I am talking is about morality, these legal issues. The issue of legality is questionable. And the oligarchies are trying to exploit all issues that have something to do with law in order to achieve some kind of, you know, certainty in their decision-making, but uh, economic gains. Now, this is affecting the, the quality of leadership that was responsible in the first place to make the United States what she became as a powerful state that I am saying is a hegemon. Now, these kind of sophistries, as I have said previously, the media misinformation, disinformation is another kind of sophistry being used. People are being treated with what they call junk kind of knowledge and information that make them, uh, that leave them wanting and asking. And therefore, the dominant class outsmart them in all attempts that they try to try to leash their republic. Now, the question, the, the concept of freedoms and the rights is another way that is being used to smart the people. You know, in civilizations, especially when it is under democracy, people tend to think that their freedoms means everything. And the rights that they are claimed to be entitled to means everything. Now, this is not true because freedoms, according to Plato, are the way 
are the means by which the oligarchies use to outsmart the people. Freedoms actually are instrumental in degrading the quality of a citizen. We are, according to Plato, we are not talking that people should not be without a freedom, that people should be denied their rights, but the way their rights are given and the way their freedoms are managed is always made to make them, you know, a bit, a bit excluded in, you know, influencing their state because uh, they are used as bargaining chips. Those who take power usually promise them some kind of rights and freedoms. Now, these freedoms eventually become elusive, and the oligarchies continue to formulate laws and you know, regulations that eventually, you know, encounter or you know become opposite to the freedoms and rights that they. They form. For example, we are talking about guns. You give someone the freedom to buy gun and use it for self-defense. It is well understood that the society is not sending. A lot of people are up to using guns for, you know, different purposes like mass shooting. Now, once there is you know, a series of shooting, the states, you know, for example, the United States of America, they have the federal and the state governments form new laws that denies people the freedoms that they expected. And therefore, it is more of the freedoms are given and taken at will because they expected that under human nature, if you give them a particular freedom, a particular problem will happen, and then that particular problem will be used as an excuse to counter them and introduce a new set of rules and legislations. And then we have also the death of data. It is very clear that now the practice of science in the United States of America and the civilization that we have today is questionable when it meets the need for money. Economic gains are being you know, put forward for the data. They, that is why we have doctors who are literally misinforming the public in order to comply, for, to comply with a particular political agenda. We have Mm, let's say the statistics of migration, its impact is being deliberately uh, used to make sure that the people can, you know, be outsmarted. Uh, the parties are using the issue of migration as a winning point uh, to the pro and, you know, those who oppose it are being outsmarted in another way. And what they do is manipulating the data using the data for political gains. I think those, uh, what I can call some selected, you know, ways that sophistry in the Republic that is the United States is using to try to admit the people. 
And, you know, as an author, I usually have a different perspective about my book. Uh, I chose this uh, the political angle as a way to try to highlight issues that arise in that book, trying to show that the Republic that the United States have today has invested in mechan mechanics and mechanisms that cannot allow the people to prosper. And therefore, it's on a course road where we face, uh, where the Republic faces a challenge. And therefore, we expect it cannot expand and be more than it is today. Rather, it will be one year. I think that is the brief that I can talk about the book. I cannot talk everything about that book. I don't know. I have been listening to Thomas Sowell, uh, the Hoover's project and the Hoover's research institution in the US. And Thomas Sowell also, you know, he constantly bashes this all liberalism in the West and talks about this equity and equality. You know, a lot of uh, very good data also he presents on the same points that you have mentioned. I wanted to ask this question that uh, what do you see once America wanes? completely completely goes uh, loses this greatness how would the new world order look like i mean who do we see as superpowers i talked about the hegemon that is being a premier state being a leading state that does not mean disintegration i will give you an example among the empires gone was the notorious Roman Empire. When Rome declined and became ineffectual, it didn't disintegrate. But her role as a key player, the leading player in the affairs of the day was diminished. The United States of America is not going anywhere. She would remain, remain as a very big, you know, political entity to reckon with. But that role of being the premier state, the passive of world affairs, is what she is losing. We are expecting that in a few years' time, in a few years' time, the world will be moving from being a unipolar world towards being a multipolar world, where the affairs of the world politics and diplomacy can be influenced by different actors apart from the United States of America. As the matter is today, the United States of America can command or even force, push countries to a particular kind of diplomacy. You know? But where we are going, other actors, now present or likely to emerge in the near future will be key players in the world affairs denying the united states of america the very primus that she used to enjoy previously that is what it means that is why we are say, i am saying it is losing hegemony it is not getting destroyed yeah you 
hegemony, that's the main theme of your talk. Why is uh, United States of America is after India? We are a big democracy and they are a big democracy. And uh, you encourage a lot of uh, anti-India forces within India from uh, United States of America. Just to give an example, uh, recently I read, you know, there's uh, a Somali senator, what is her name? Ilhan Omar, she is uh, coming out with a bill and she is a Republican, I suppose, or sorry, she's a Democrat. She's coming out with a bill about, you know, human rights and so on and so forth. And all American universities joined together and they gave uh, space and plat platform uh, for all those forces um, who, who uh, joined together to uh, launch a seminar uh, what you call dismantling global Hindutva. So like that, uh, I am seeing America is, uh, uh, in spite of, uh, you know, uh, we being, uh, you know, democracy and uh, following human rights. This is a very nice question because it goes to the very foundation of what many people have been saying about the problem with democracy. I said democracies, when infused with the element of, you know, republics, works to outsmart other lands and their own people. Now, what is happening actually is the fact that they know we cannot, some, I mean, people in other countries cannot exercise democracy perfectly. And therefore, it is most likely that if you if you push to them democracy, you push democracy to them, it will likely confuse them even more. Now, leading to opening up of more strategic mistakes that the United States can exploit. For example, the pushing of democracy in most third world countries brought more problems than solutions. Now, those problems became the very opportunities that the USA could claim to go to address. If you say, for example, in countries where the United States, you know, intervened, let's say in Iraq, they were, they were accused of being dictators, of being anti-democratic. Now, trying to push to them democracy. It means you open up a space for manipulating them easily. The state that we have in Iraq today is less stable compared to what we had during Saddam Hussein. The state that we have in Libya today is less stable compared to what we had during Muammar Gaddafi. Now, that kind of state allows even more room for easy manipulation. It is not that the United States loves other countries and therefore thinks they should enjoy democracy. That is not true. But it is because under their social context, their structures, their history, if you give them democracy, you give them more competition and the contentions. Now that opens up a strategic room for and the way to manipulate them. The same applies if you give democracy to Somalia, 
which is already a failed state, you are meaning these people should be, you know, uh, in constant conflict because they cannot agree even on basic issues. Now, if you give them democracy, you are meaning the majority can easily be outsmarted by any other force that can be fomented. That is the only reason. Democracy is not just for uh, helping other states, it's for trying to create the strategic condition that can allow manipulation. That is. Do you have any concluding remarks, some remarks towards the end before we end the talk? Yeah, maybe the remarks that I can make has something to do with the nature and the characteristics of hegemons. You know, we are talking about polities becoming preeminent. And from history, we learn that people always have social, political, and economic challenges that makes them changing over time. Their perception and their you know, uh, reception of issues is always uh, related to what they experience from time to time. Now, it is experience that usually change people and lead to the decay of hegemons and empires. The other thing that I can talk is that there is no single perspective that can satisfactorily help to understand empires because across different eras and epochs, empires are you know, contained in their own, their own geographical locations their own social fabric and even their historical experiences. With this fact, it becomes clear that they cannot all be put in the same box to help understand them. They have differences. What this book and many writers have tried to indicate is the fact that there are some common features of social evolution and dislocation that can be used to help understand why polities rise, you know, expand, become dominant, and later when. Nevertheless, this cannot be applied to all emperors gone. And I will also wind up this by reminding you that within the United States of America, we have a rather unique hegemon, one that has never existed before. As I said, we never had before a republic that is a democracy and yet is an empire. We didn't have that. And I, I I will remind you that I say the United States of America is an intellectual creation. It was created out of the founding fathers when they wanted to form the United States of America. They went back to learning what happened in the past. They went back to learning Europe. It is said that after the revolution, they spent three weeks or a month trying to deliberate, researching on the nature of 
the administration they wanted. The United States of America as a republic was created out of proper historical, social, political, and economic studies. And therefore, they formed what can be called an intellectual republic, a republic that is born out of intellectual researches and a vast knowledge that was already known about you know people and power uh, civilization and you know governments now this tends not to cope with the realities of the people they have what we are facing that we have a very good state that is a result of intellectual understanding but the people live being influenced by their own day-to-day -day experience this is what is creating the, 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 the future dilemma of what the United States will become. Yeah, only that.